Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Duel Future. I'm uh, now joined with me with the amazing Natalie Bennett, or to give her official title, uh, Baroness Bennett of Manor Castle. Um, Natalie here is the former leader of the Green Party and a current lord. Natalie, hello. Hello, and it's great to be with you. That's amazing. So first of all, right off the bat, what is uh, Baroness Bennett of the Manor Castle about? Okay, well, you know, I'm aware it's a bit unfortunate that Manor Castle sounds a bit posh, but um, this is in Sheffield. It's the ward that I live in in Sheffield. And um, one of the, you know, anyone who knows Sheffield at all, this is the S2 postcode, which is very definitely not posh. And when I'm seeking to explain this to, you know, fellow members of the House of Lords, I put it down that I reckon the last person with the title who lived in Manor Castle was probably Mary, Queen of Scots who was being held captive in the in the manner that the uh, title refers to. Um, so, you know, that was a very, very long time ago. <laughs> wow, all right then. That's a, that's a pretty good opening here. So, of course, you know, you were the leader of the Green Party from 2012 uh, to 2016. And um, I just had you know, a quick retrospective of your, of your time leading the party. Um, when you look back on it, you know, what do you think? What do you think was, um, I guess, your greatest achievement or your, great, and your greatest regret uh, in your time leading um, the Greens? Well, I think they, you know, what I have to be proud of, and this was not my effort, this is the effort of everyone who got involved in the Green Party, was the Green Surge, which you know, in late 2014, 2015, membership of the Green Party more than quadruple. And then the 2015 election, um, where we um, got more votes in the general election than we've got in every previous general election added together. So it was a real point of stepping up for the Green Party. Um, and, you know, what that did was it allowed us to build a much bigger Green Party, a much bigger staff team. But it took, you know, a couple of years for that to really, the results of that to really show. And, you know, I guess there's a couple of years in there where you feel like it would have been lovely to have made more progress. But we didn't really see the real fruits of that in terms of sort of seats um, until we got to um, 2019 when we saw the council elections where we more than double our number of seats in one election. And the last European elections, of course, the, the last Democratic fair elections held in the UK where the Green Party got 10% of the vote um, and, you know, an almost equal number of MEPs. So, you know, it took some time for the for the Green surge to really deliver in terms of seats um, and elected Greens, and, but it's great to see them now. What was it like running a third party? It must, it must you know, I imagine it would almost feel a lot like an uphill battle at times. You know, you're considered almost to put it rather brutally, um, almost insignificant, you know, you're not seen as, as a major player in winning seats. What is it like um, facing this sort of real challenge to be almost taken seriously in, I guess, by voters and in media? Well, I'm, I'm going to pick up on the wording of your question to start off with, which is running the party, because the Green Party just doesn't w work like that. Um, you know, the Green Party, the policies are decided by its members. Your job is to represent the Green Party. You're not in charge. And, you know, that demonstrates the, one of the ways in which the Green Party really does politics differently. Um, but in terms of how what it's like to being treated, you know, if you want one word answer, I'd have to say very frustrating. Um, and, you know, if you actually look at there was academic studies done after the 15 election, and, you know, we struggled all the way to get media attention. We had, you might recall the hashtag, uh, invite the Greens. Uh, we had a huge fight to get into the leader debates. Um, and if you look at the media coverage at the end of that, there was an academic study. And we got about half the coverage that our votes that we actually got would have entitled us to. So we got 3.6% of the vote. Um, and we got about half that in terms of the media coverage. So, you know, the media has consistently undercovered us. And indeed, you know, there's far too many old dinosaurs in the mainstream media, you know, some of them are slowly retiring uh, or seeing, seeing their wings crept a little, but who grew up in the era when there were two parties 
and that represented British politics. And they really, you know, just aren't used to the idea that uh, politi politics is multifaceted and people have a range of different views. Um, and, you know, as I said, you know, the European elections, we got 10% of the vote. Um, if we got 10% of the media coverage, wow, what a, what a different uh, sort of picture and story you'd get from the British media. What would you say is more of a a, um, a major blockage in, you know, trying to transfer your messages to people? Because um, a lot of the time when you talk to someone of a third party, um, they tell stories of, oh, I was talking to this voter and they said they'd love to vote for me. They think I'm great, but they can't because they want they can't let X win or they can't, you know, they need this person to get in. Is 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 does that more heartbreaking or is it the lack of attention that certain media figures would often pay to third parties? I think the, the the more disturbing thing is the situation of the voters because you know, I spend a lot of my time talking about the need for a fair democratic electoral system in the UK. You know, at our current totally broken dysfunctional constitution, um, and you know, people say rightly that yes, that would benefit you as the Green Party. Yes, but what's much more tragic is that people can't express their views, people can't be represented in Parliament. And if you think about it, you know, our current first-past-the-post system, the majority of people's votes don't count. Most people live in safe seats. You know, people can live in Sheffield, where I'm talking to you from, um, for all of their life and vote Tory, um, and they won't even elect a councillor. There's no Tories on, on Sheffield Council. And that means those people are unrepresented, however much I might disagree with them. <laughs> Go to Surrey, and it's the other way around for Labour voters go all around the country and it's the same for, for green voters except in Brighton Pavilion. Um, but so, you know, and there's a, a Make Votes Matter, the brilliant organisation has some really good stats on this, that around the world, turnout in first-past-the-post um, elections is about 10% lower than it is in uh, PR elections. People know if their vote doesn't count, um, they don't bother to vote. And that's even true if you, you support the party that's, that you know is going to win your seat because your vote's not going to make any difference. So one of these changes that you advocate for in order to, you know, improve the, um, I guess, the democratic legitimacy of our elections is um, changes to the House of Lords. You yourself are obviously a Lord. And in your you know, your first Lord speech, uh, it, it, you walked in and says, well, you're probably not going to like me, but I'm here now, um, which is something that I quite enjoyed. So what is it that you want to do to change the laws, uh, the Lords? Is it just a complete scrapping or is it a rejig? What is it that you want to do uh, so that you are able to get rid of your own position? <laughs> well, I mean, what we want to do is create a, a, a House of Lords where everyone who has a vote in the Lords is elected. Um, and this is a kind of staged process whereby we would gradually, over two electoral cycles, you know, end up with everyone who's voting is um, is elected. But what we want to do is try and keep some of the good elements of the Lords. And, you know, we've just been through 60 hours of debate line by line with 321 amendments on, on the Agriculture Bill. And this is not the sexiest kind of politics you can possibly imagine. Um, and, you know, to have people who are prepared to go through that scrutiny, people with legal expertise in that. Um, what we say is to kind of keep some of the positive sides of culture of the Lords is we would allow existing um, life peers, those who been appointed uh, to continue to speak while ever they're around so you wouldn't appoint new ones but they would be there for long enough to actually create the culture and you know we also want to encourage um, the cross party that is the peers who aren't um, linked to any party to actually stand lists and you know they would give the British people the chance to vote for the upper house for you know we want some people like that in there uh, and I think that would happen and it would work if you look at the Australian example the um the Senate in Australia, which is elected through PR, although they have AV in the lower house, which is not a proportional system. Um, but in the Senate, many people vote differently to they do in the House of Reps 
because they're consciously saying, right, we want a House of Review, we're going to vote differently, we're going to get different people there. And that's what you could do, not just replicating the Commons. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what is it like being um, almost a, a self-hating lord, being, being someone who is in there and wanting to burn the walls down um, figuratively, I hope? <laughs> um, uh, no, we should turn it into a museum. You know, we want to keep it as a nice museum. It would make a lovely museum. Maybe... Maybe a supermarket. It would make a great Asda, in my opinion. The aisles are already there. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, that's original. I haven't heard that one before. You know, I have heard suggestions for social housing, which is a nice, attractive concept, but I'm not quite sure how practical it is. <laughs> it's, you know, fair enough. Um, so what is, is there almost like a, a difficulty in the environment of being someone who is so different to you know the standard lord it's quite a traditional body at least the way people most view it um is there something about being someone who you know has very progressive views also doesn't really like the house of lords that much and then is or at least not right now sitting in this chamber I think, I mean, it's a situation that lots of Greens find themselves in in all sorts of different circumstances because, you know, it's like um, we take part in first-past-the-post elections even though we don't agree with them because that's what you have to do. Um, and so you know, what I've learnt over the years, and the House of Lords is the same, is you have to really all of the time be thinking and making decisions. Do I follow the rules? Do I go do the, the you know, the unwritten rules, the informal rules, as well as the formal rules? Do I go with the flow or do I, you know, bust out and and break the rules? And what I've learnt over the years is to try to, you know, really pick your battles, break the rules when it's something really important and it really matters. But, you know, I do my best to call, you know, the bishops right reverend prelates and the, um, uh, you know, the um, uh, lords who are former judges, you know, uh, the uh, noble and learned lord, and, you know, I try and, and, and uh, the ex-military and no, the noble and gallant lord. And I do my best to get all of that stuff right, because, you know, people get up really upset if you don't. And it doesn't really matter in the overall <laughs> scheme of things. That's not the issue. You know, what I'd much rather do is, is get the pleasure of then, you know, saying the words land reform really loudly uh, at the uh, Tory benches opposite and watching some squirms. <laughs> Have you had a real moment of like of, of culture shock? Um entering the house of lords you know you, you see these documentaries and it, it it looks like a completely um almost comical place to be there's there's so many rules as you describe so many different names to learn have you had a moment in in entering the lords where you've just been totally caught out and totally lost in, in what's happening um no i've been quite lucky i mean you i was incredibly lucky because i'm the second green peer jenny jones came in before me mm-hmm. and you know it was much more difficult for jenny as indeed it's been a huge you know um challenge for Caroline Lucas down in the Commons to be the only Green and there's no one to guide you. So, you know, in my early days, I was lucky that I had um, Jenny there. So, you know, I, I, I managed, I mean, Jenny tells some funny stories of, you know, not being quite sure which lobby to go down when she was voting, you know, weird and wacky traditional voting <laughs> system. But I think, you know, you do have strange moments. And one of my recent ones was um, when I got up and uh, in the agriculture bill debate, got up and followed the Duke of Wellington and said, it's my great pleasure to follow the noble Duke of Wellington and to agree with everything he just said and to have been able to second, to attach my name to his motion because it was a motion that the government should support organic agriculture more. Now, that's the Tory Duke of Wellington. And there was, you know, a little picture in my head when you say Duke of Wellington, you can't help but think Napoleonic Wars. Um, uh, there I was doing that. And, you know, I had a mild boggle, but... Uh, <laughs> So um, in your time with the Lords now, you know, one thing that you, you've been passionately advocating for for so long since back in your um, 
your time as green as the head of the green party and still now is uh, universal basic income um at the time you know you can read um news articles that around the time you were making this argument it was almost considered to be a bit of a joke in a lot of articles it was oh this is ridiculous how could this ever be a thing but now this idea is getting a lot more attention you can see andrew yang in america has given it a lot of legitimacy and a lot more people are taking this idea far more seriously especially in the wake of covid um so do you almost feel slightly vindicated um to to have an idea that was almost you know laughed in everything from the telegraph to the guardian to being a really serious and um almost, you know, very effective policy in many areas i think what it is is really not a surprise i mean this kind of a phrase that says greens lead others follow and we've been in this situation on so many different things and you know this is actually showing that politics is moving faster because i think there's a traditional about a 10-year period you know, it was 10 years before the government brought in George Osborne's fake living wage, not a real living wage. But, you know, by saying trying to call the minimum wage a living wage, they conceded the principle. 10 years before we started saying the minimum wage should be a real living wage. It should be enough money to live on. And people went all those crazy radical greens and their mad ideas. We said, you know, 20 mile per hour speed limits where people live, work and shop. Crazy green radical ideas. Ten years later, you know, the city of London goes 20 mile per hour speed limits. Um, air pollution. Ten years ago, we were we were banging on about air pollution. Everyone else kind of went, oh, yeah, that's those greens. And, oh, it's a middle class concern, even though at the time we knew that the poorest areas are always the worst affected by air pollution. Um, so there's, you know, we're very used to this pattern. Where we're at now, really, though, is, you know, the state of the world, the state of our crisis. Um, we can't wait that 10 years anymore. That's why we've got to elect Greens. <laughs> so I, I'm personally quite a fan of UBI, and I, I often talk to people about it. And then that, the um, the immediate reaction is, "Oh, that's 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 insane. Why?" Um, so what what is your your argument for UBI, and why do you think so many people, when they first hear the term and they first get it explained to them, have almost a a visceral reaction to uh, to the idea? Well, I think it's 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 a failure of imagination, and you know most people you talk to um, and be used to a world whereby, you know, you have a job, you secure a job, you do that for 40 hours a week. Um, and that's why, you know, I think young people are very much more open to the, to the idea of UBI than older people are, not just because young people tend to be open to new ideas, but also because older people have this idea of how, you know, you proceed in a career, life goes on in this stable pattern and life, you know, increasingly well, you know, there's plenty of women in their 50s for whom that's not the pattern these days anyway. But, you know, there's still people have thought of that. If I'm starting my arguments, I start really from a human rights argument. And we, you know, in most, you know, even most Tories, most people would accept that there is a right to life. That's the kind of basic, most fundamental human right there is. Um, that needs access to food, access to shelter, um, the basics of life. Um, we don't guarantee that at the moment in a world of zero hours contracts, benefit sanctions. So universal basic income means everyone gets to meet their basic needs. And the other side of this is, you know, universal basic income is the absolute 100% opposite of universal credit. It's enormously conditional. It has all these conditions on that will determine what, if anything, you get. As soon as you introduce conditionality, um, some people are going to fall through the cracks. Some people will miss out. And this is what COVID has really helped to demonstrate. You know, the hashtag new starter furlough, um, people who just happen to be changing jobs at the wrong moment have got totally stuck. People running small businesses that didn't have three years of accounts, totally, you know, in a right mess. People who work in the cultural industries who, you know, normally just go from contract to contract to contract, you know, and those whole industries are now in a mess. And because you've got conditionality, 
some people, even if you're trying to help, you know, you patch and patch and patch to fix the people who are being fall, falling through, but there's always holes. Mm -hmm. So um, <clears throat> a lot of the time, so what I often do have the conversation and I, I make my, I make the ethical point or the moral point, I, mean, I human rights argument for UBI. And then the next step is, oh, sure. But how on earth are we going to pay for it? And it, it's a difficult question. You don't need to go into too much detail, but what do you say to someone who just says, as I'm sure you've heard so many times, how on earth are we going to pay for it? Okay. Well, I mean, there's a couple of things to say. You know, we've actually we've presented two fully costed proposals, which people are happy, delighted for people to look at, 2015 and 2019, and they took two slightly different approaches. You know, at the moment we have a situation where rich individuals and multinational companies don't pay their taxes, don't pay their way, um, and you. If you look at our 2015 figures, basically about half the cost was covered by replacing existing benefits and the massing savings you make on administration costs. Because one of the arguments for UBI is it's very cheap to administer. You know, um, child benefit costs about 1% of the total cost of the benefit to administer. UBI would be about the same. Mm -hmm. As soon as you bring in conditions, as soon as you say you have to go and report to the job centre and you know sit with a job coach for 40 minutes and talk about things, of course, the, the costs escalate enormously. So um, about half the cost comes from replacing existing benefits and savings. In 15, we, we mostly funded it basically through um, raising um, taxes on rich individuals and multinational companies. In 19, we took a slightly different approach and, you know, none of this was actually hypothecated, but this was the, what we were talking about, which was the, the idea of a carbon tax. And you know, one of the, the arguments against the carbon tax and one of the things we saw with the gilets jaunes in France um, was, you know, the government at the same time as dropping wealth taxes, raised fuel taxes, which really hit, you know, people who didn't have a public transport option and relied on their cars to get to work. And so, it, you know, if carbon tax potentially raises costs for some people who are going to struggle or can't afford it, if you put the carbon tax back into a UBI, then you can see the argument for both of them and they fit together quite nicely. Mm -hmm. um, so also another uh, argument you bring up very often, you know, in, in the laws, you, you've, you've been tirelessly advocating for a lot of um, very left and very progressive ideas, um, in particular in the wake of COVID. Uh, COVID has been, you know, obviously a massive crisis. We've touched on it a few times here. Um, what would you say are your, your top three or five, or however many of the key points that you have in trying to recover from this? Um, everyone has a lot of different ideas. Everyone has a lot of opinions about what the conservative government's currently doing. Um, what would you say would be your top three um, things that need to be done immediately, or at least that need to be done to try and get us out of this straight away? Okay, well, I'd start, you know, one of the things COVID has done is forced us to spend a lot more time in our homes. And if you look at what our homes are, you know, we have, in terms of new homes, we build pretty well the smallest new homes in Europe. We have lots of people in horribly overcrowded housing. Um, you know, one of the things I've been picking up on the government on is the whole issue of the bedroom tax which actually aimed to force children to share bedrooms and to force families into smaller homes. And if you think about what that does under lockdown situation, um, you know, we need adequate housing and, you know, there's more bit, you know, I've just been on a call with it with a Tory MP going, Oh, we've got to build more homes um, for, um, you know, because people need homes. There's actually now more bedrooms per person in the UK than there's ever been before. Um, what we have is huge inequality. There's quite a lot of places where two people are living in a six-bedroom house and the other, part, other places, other families, where six people are living in a two-bedroom house. Um, and there's also huge regional inequalities in that because people have been forced to move to London and the southeast for the office jobs, which may now change, um, 
then you know there's empty homes you know whole streets of liverpool of empty homes up on the Wirral I've been down streets where it's just you know because there's no economic opportunities if you actually address the regional inequalities then you can start to ensure that people have the space the homes that they need and of course also you know we have um, horrendously poor quality of housing stocks so massive investment in home energy efficiency insulation etc and the government's put two billion in that's about um, uh, about a tenth of what nor uh, what Denmark's doing and Denmark has already much better quality of homes than we have so homes we need a huge change and behind that is we need to stop regarding as homes as primarily financial assets and treat them as ensuring everyone has a secure affordable appropriately sized place to live Secondly, work. I mean, you, if we had a UBI society, one of the questions that's often asked is, oh, but how would you get people to do the really horrible jobs? Um, and, you know, I think maybe people wouldn't want to go and work in those hideous call centres where you have to finish every call in 54 seconds and they time you when you go to the loo. Mm -hmm. And maybe that would improve all of our lives. Um, but also, you know, maybe if there's some really horrible jobs, and I often cite sewer cleaners, um, maybe you'd have to pay people a lot to clean the sewers. Um, maybe you would have to pay sewer cleaners more than you pay bankers. <laughs> maybe you should pay sewer cleaners more than you pay bankers. So, you know, what COVID's done is highlighted who are the really essential people. It's the supermarket workers, it's the delivery workers, it's the care workers people who've been shoved into zero hours contracts, terribly low pay. So we need a fundamental realignment in the world of work to acknowledge what it's for. Four day working week is standard with no loss of pay, something we've been talking mm -hmm. about for a long while. You know, if we're talking about sharing the work around. Um, and then the third thing is, you know, obviously in terms of the environment, we've got to understand that you can't have infinite growth on a finite planet. And growth, you know, decades and decades of growth have given us a horribly unequal society with a mental ill health epidemic. Um, so we've got to move towards saying, how do we create a well-being society, one that meets everyone's needs, gives everyone a decent life, treats everyone with respect. And that means, you know, not focusing on GDP and growth. It means aiming for something very different. Mm -hmm. So two questions on um, those points. I'll start with um, the work point, then I'll move on to the environment one. Um, so you described there, you know, the the reevaluation of who is important in society, who needs to be paid more. Um, uh, a question prodding from the left on this side. Um, are you familiar with the concept of worker-owned co-ops? Mm -hmm. yep. So um, my question would be, um, as a system of adjusting, you know, payment and ownership in society, um, what is your opinion on worker-owned co-ops? They're quite they're quite an under-analyzed idea, I would say, especially in in uh, UK politics. Um, and a lot of the time, it's one of those things where people hear it and it's like UBI; it gets thrown out the window straight away. Um, what do you see uh, as the role of, of worker co-ops in comparison to um, universal basic income in providing this system of um, improved standard of living, ownership, or control of one's work, uh, etc.? Um, I mean, I don't think there's any opposition at all between UBI and worker-owned co-ops. Um, and it's actually Green Party policy to say that basically, you know, in any company, workers should be able to form a cooperative and take over the company. So <laughs> it's something that's very much at the heart of Green Party politics. And, you know, just some of the ones that I've happened to know, there's um, a little um, a, a fruit and vegetable growing site um, in um, North London, in Chingford, uh, called Organic Lee. 
and you know that's a cooperative um, owned by its workers um, trying to produce healthy food for a relatively poor area that, that's around it. Uh, they, they do um, fruit and veg bags, not boxes, because boxes are seen as a middle class idea. Bags are smaller and cheaper and so more, more fitting for, for the community they work in. And, you know, that's, you know, and another one, which is a really interesting one, is SUMA, a sort of whole foods cooperative, old traditional one, where everyone in the company is paid the same. It's a cooperative and they pay every staff member the same. Um, and, you know, so I think there's really, and, you know, in Spain, for example, there's some really good models of that. I suppose you... I think that's a good way to organise elements of the economy. I'd love to see, you know, lots more things like organic lee, um, every town, city surrounded by a ring of um, market gardens, which might, you know, be perhaps a, a cooperative of, uh, of, you know, some of them might be worker-owned, some of them might be private, but if they work together cooperatively, just supply the town with food. That's, you know, that it, so I think, you know, you don't want to really prescribe models. You just want to leave people to get on with it and have the ingenuity. But I think, you know, work-around co-ops is a very, you know, an ideal way forward. Mm -hmm. So now onto the environment point here. Um, in a previous podcast, I had a, a local councillor of mine, Jonathan Chilvers, who's a Green Party councillor uh, on, and I, I asked him about um, the governmental situation in Austria. I don't know if it's changed at this point, but I do remember this example, where essentially the far-right Conservative Party went into a coalition with their equivalent of the Greens, um and the deal was essentially we're keeping our cultural policy and some of our economic however here's a load of climate concessions that you can have in this form them together um my simple question is what is if in this example where um, the conservatives have come to you today and they've said right we can work with you guys you can join the coalition with us but here's the here's the deal you can have environmental policies but you have to abandon some of these how do you see this trade-off uh, especially considering um you know a lot of the uh, arguments around environmental issues are, are very evocative and about you know the end of the world very understandably what do you see as this trade-off between these two things well i think first of all i am not an expert on austrian politics but my understanding of what happened was that um the greens basically went into coalition with a kind of what used to be the center right but had certainly moved to the right group and what they did by doing that was they stopped that group going into government with the absolute far right with you know essentially the fascists mm -hmm. so there was a very difficult call in that particular circumstances you know if you're actually keeping the fascists out of government what do you do it's, it's <laughs> you know it's a difficult situation um mm -hmm. and, and so you know perhaps perhaps we move it from austria because i'm, I'm not sure either of us sure, really know enough about austrian politics to make the details <laughs> i certainly don't um but um you know in the british context um you know we've always said we would never keep the tories in power we would do everything we possibly could to keep the Tories out. Um, now, if you imagine something like, as I've just painted, an Austrian situation, um, if you had a, you know, the only other option was Brexit Party and Tories together. I mean, actually, the Tories are the Brexit Party now, so it's slightly artificial. But, um, you know, if, you know, we were in that kind of situation, what we've always said, and this is what we've said, if it was to be, you know, with Labour, you know, with any other party is rather than getting tied into a coalition where you're forced to vote for things that you don't believe in. Um, and, you know, tuition fees comes to mind here, um, joining a coalition and then voting entirely against what you what your policy had been, um, that, you know, you would set up some kind of confidence and supply agreement. Mm -hmm. um, so that would be a situation where, where you would you know keep the least worst option in power. So if they were threatened with being thrown out and something worse was coming in, you would ensure that didn't happen. 
but you wouldn't take the ministerial cars, you wouldn't take the fancy things that go with being part of the coalition. Mm -hmm. You would then reserve the right to vote however you wanted to on nuclear weapons or on, you know, anti-privatisation or whatever it might be. So, you know, it's not necessarily either or. There are other approaches that you can take. Okay. Um, But purely on the basis of the ideas to to restrict all, I guess, um, external factors, it's, it's, I don't know, um, a, a deity has arrived and they said, right, you can have all your environmental policies or a lot of the things that we've been talking about, which is things, you know, like UBI and housing issues. And obviously these these overlap a significant amount. Um, which do you see as what you would have to go for? as Separating them as much as possible. Do you see uh, the, the green side of the greens or the, you know, class side of the greens to be um, predominant? Well, I mean, I would say the deity is wrong um, because, and you know, if you look at the, the philosophical basis of the Green Party, it says that economic and environmental justice are indivisible. Mm-hmm. And there are people around the world who, you know, call themselves Greens and are right wing. But I would say that's an utterly philosophically incoherent position because, you know, if we think about this practically, Britain collectively, however you live as an individual, we use the resources of our share of three planets every year. We've only got one planet. We have to come back to one planet living. That's way of one way of summing up, you know, where we are now. Mm-hmm. You're heading into donut economics kind of territory. Now, if you say to the whole of Britain, right, everyone cut back by two thirds. So we leave inequality where it is now. Everyone just cuts back equally by two thirds. That literally leaves a lot of people dead. Now, killing people is a profoundly, you know, uh, ungreen thing to do. Um, <laughs> so you have to be, you know, call it progressive, call it left, call it what you like. You cannot, you know, make environmental choices unless you change the situation where a few people have access to a huge amount of resources in society and they consume a huge amount of those resources. And, you know, turn it round to a really practical level. I was in um, Little in Sheffield um, a year or so ago, but I'm sure it hasn't changed. And I was looking at the plastic wrapped vegetables versus the loose vegetables. And the loose vegetables were about twice as expensive as the plastic wrapped ones. Now, whatever you have people who can't make a choice, you've got to buy the cheapest thing because they're struggling to just basically feed Mm -hmm. themselves. Um, Then, you know, you're going to have the the plastic wrapped stuff. Everyone has to be paid enough money to have enough money for UBI or however to, you know, be able to feed themselves and everything else in an environmentally friendly way. And that means lots of people need more money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you've told this deity he's wrong and in a, in a fit of rage uh, he sets a fire in parliament it's all gone, you're the only one left Natalie you're now prime minister right, what are we doing you're prime minister, um, I guess because uh, we, we brought up you know, sort of COVID policies earlier um, where we've, we've, we've passed that, this is just day one, you've walked into number 10, um, what are going to be your your practical policies to try and impact people's lives as fast as possible because you never know when they're going to rebuild parliament you've got a short period of time as prime minister what are, what are we going for what are, what would be a nasty bennett um i guess 10 year be like okay well you know ubi and i'm not, not just saying this because it's one of your favorite policies you know ubi try and roll that out because one of the things that you have evidence about ubi is that you know if you give people a universal benefit it becomes very hard to undo it. And there's some great examples from um, New Zealand. New Zealand has a pensions that's kind of a pension that's like kind of like a UBI for older people in that it's a very decent level of pension and it's paid to everyone, has no contributory element. So everyone just gets it. 
as soon as you turn whatever age it is in New Zealand, you get that. And they've had some very right-wing governments who've tried to abolish that. Um, and they just haven't been able to, even very, very right-wing governments. Um, and so if you could get UBI entrenched, get it going, then it would be very hard for anyone to undo it in the future. I mean, I think a massive program of what I was talking about, housing, um, of, um, uh, you know, training, there have to be huge amounts of training, you know, a huge amount of effort put in to develop um, small independent businesses, you know, provide the framework to help them get going. Every town and village has, you know, an, an insulation and home energy efficiency, half a dozen people, a couple of companies, you know, that would be a crucial area. And the third thing I'd do is I would throw as much power as possible as I could out of Westminster into local local authorities, local regions, you know, mm -hmm. down even to the parish type level. Um, so, you know, basically undo as much of the centralization of power in Westminster as you could possibly manage so that people have control so then they can decide for themselves what they want to do in each local area. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So there's, there's three things to be, which would probably keep the civil service busy, I suspect. <laughs> so, you know, another one of your, you, know, you brought up there, um, one of your favorite policies that you're trying to charm me, UBI, of course, but another one that I'm a big fan of, which I believe you mentioned before, uh, obviously the laws as well, uh, and also the monarchy, um, uh, abolishing the monarchy or just ditching them in some way, or at least reducing their power. Big fan. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I was looking back at your time um, in the Green Party and the arguments that you made and the points that you made and obviously the platform that you ran on um, decided by the party. And I think it would be fair to say that it's one of, if not the most progressive um, platform in British history, maybe maybe level with Corbyn's, potentially even slightly more. Um, do you think that this is one of the reasons um, why... Um, you felt quite a lot of, I guess, distaste or rejection or even um, apathy from media types was because you um, had, especially for the time, such um, radical ideas that um, even now a lot of people still would would, would scoff at uh, and not even engage with. Do you think this is why you you believe in your political career you've seen you've seen some, I guess, um, difficulties in engaging with media? I, I think um, I mean people just had at that point, a totally false idea of where the British public was. You know, people who'd only really had their journalistic career under neoliberalism and, you know, nothing had really changed in British politics up to that time since the election of Margaret Thatcher. Blair was the child of Thatcher. Cameron was the child of Blair. Um, and so, you know, what I struggled with and, you know, sometimes you just had to go stop sort of your jaw dropping because, you know, one of the things I was pushing very hard was renationalisation of the railways or bringing the railways back into public hands. Mm. And, you know, you get journalists going, oh, that's a radical policy. And, you know, I go, well, actually, um, surveys show that a majority of Tory voters are in favour of bringing the railways back into public hands. By definition, that's actually not very radical if it's backed by a majority mm -hmm. of Tory voters. And I think it was actually a, um, a German journalist who pointed this out to me that I hadn't. Sometimes it's interesting. People with an outside view really see things. And he said, you do. Um, the Greens and also, you know, SNP implied in the 2015 election, we were the three anti-austerity parties. Um, you know, the Labour Party still very much was like, oh, you know, we've got to make the balance, the budget balance like it's a, like it's a checkbook and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, but we actually paved the way for Corbyn. Um, you know, that created the space and it showed there was huge public hunger for that kind of, you know, much more radical Labour Party. I mean, you know, it's going back now and who knows where it's going now. But, um, you know, back then, um, the, the media class, London, saw this as really radical. Um, but actually, you know, 
the, the general public out there, you know, mm-hmm. being anti the privatisation of the NHS. I had a lovely meeting in Darlington with it. Well, not meeting. It was it was over breakfast at a and b with the very Brexiteer owner. Um, and, you know, rather than have a row about Brexit, I sort of set out to see what we agreed on. And, you know, she absolutely didn't want the local A&E in the hospital closed. She absolutely wanted multinational companies to pay their taxes. She absolutely wanted everyone to have a real living wage. And you know, those are views that are shared very, very widely across society. So, um, you know, you described sort of the status quo for many years, neoliberalism. Um, I think it'd be nice to sort of iron down specifically what your ideology is or what you would call it. So, you know, I think I think populism is often a bit of a dirty word in politics nowadays. However, what you're describing to me sounds a lot like a populist argument, which is, you know, people are in favor of these policies, no matter where they are on the spectrum. This is what we need to represent. How would you describe your specific, um, I guess, political spot on the on in the world? Well, I, I guess you know, I'm, I'm aiming for popular rather than populist, um, which is, you know, uh, I, I, I think I think, you know, to draw a definition between it. And I would say that, you know, that right wing populism is, um, you know, these are the two competing political philosophies of the age. And you know, green versus versus UKIP Brexit Party or worse. Um, and the core thing is, we say there's enough resources on this planet for everyone to have a decent life, and for us to look after the environment and not trash it um, if we share them out fairly. Mm-hmm. That's you know that is green political philosophy in a nutshell. What you've got on the the other side is the far right. Um, who say, oh, it's a difficult, dangerous world, and we've got to, you know, grab as much as we can for us and ours, shove the others away, whoever the others are, build walls to keep them out, you know, arm ourselves, um, be strong, you know, in that Mm -hmm. kind of way. And what that's built on is, you know, people feeling powerless and looking to someone to ride up on a white horse and lead them to victory. What's foundational behind our understanding is that you, know, if you empower everyone and give everyone respect, space, time, opportunities to make decisions for themselves, um, you know, in a democratic way, you build a society that lives within the physical limits of this one planet because that's what we have to do. But with that democratic input, you can get to a point where everyone has enough. And I think you know the key word is green politics is about security. And security is not about guns or goodness help us nuclear weapons. It's about ensuring that we can put food, everyone can put food on the table, keep a roof over their head, you know, knows that they can think, what would I like to do with my life? How can I do it? This is the way I can make steps toward it. Um, and, you know, I can progress and, and I'll be respected uh, for, for my contributions. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've engaged a lot with um, the ideas of the Greens and yourself uh, in this podcast. And I think now is the perfect time to delve into Right, we've got all these great ideas. I'm loving it. I'm on board. How are we going to make it happen? Uh, how can the uh, whether yourself or the Greens as a party get this foothold in action and you know start to impact this real change? Does it involve the working with other parties? Does it involve almost a co-opting something, or is there a, a path to um, seeing all these these fantastic policies start to impact people's lives? Well, I think you know, it's a matter of if you look at where our base level of support is, the European elections, ten percent. That is you know, a fair measure of the base level of support we have. Uh, what we've got to do is make sure that we, in more and more places than we did in the council elections in 19, where we doubled our number of councillors in one election. Um, and, you know, as a result of that, um, last count I saw, we are now part of 18 
they're called various things, but let's for shorthand call them rainbow coalitions, um, where where part of administrations, Greens are running things, you know, Lewis um, down uh, in near Brighton is one of them, for example, um, you know, in Herefordshire County Council, um, us coming from one side and a residence group, you know, a progressive residence group coming from the other side took Herefordshire County Council off the Tories. And a few years ago, if you told anyone that the Tories would lose Herefordshire County Council, they just wouldn't have believed it. Um, so, you know, we can win within the current system and this current system can turn around. And, you know, the Tory party in particular is profoundly unstable. I mean, the leadership is now the Brexit party um, and there's lots of Tories who are unhappy with that and lots of Tory voters who, as time goes by, are going to be very unhappy with that. They've got the weird mixture of having red wall seats with Surrey stockbroker seats. Mm. You know. So just because Labour and Tory have been the two largest parties for a century doesn't mean that's going to continue. Mm. Um, it's perfectly possible that, you know, just, um, you know, we could, you know, I'm, I'm working for the first Green government. Um, I sometimes say half joking, well, jokingly, I'm going to retire then, but I probably wouldn't. But, um, <laughs> uh, but you know, but in the meantime, you know, we've just taken over Brighton and Hove um, Council again as a minority administration. You know, I'm very proud of the achievements last time, even with all the difficulties now, I'm sure we'll achieve a great deal with that. Um, so, you know, obviously we're working to get a fair democratic voting system, a transformation in, in British and particularly English politics. But um, what we're talking about too is, you know, winning seats, you know, we've become one of the, the major parties. Um, you know, we want to really leap up that ladder, go much further. Um, and, you know, we've had three elections in five years. Um, we're very, very unstable. And that's good news because change is coming. So for the people watching slash listening this, they've loved everything. They've loved the ideas. What do they do right now to help out the Green Party? How can they get involved in uh, seeing this change that um, you're so passionate for advocating for? Well, my obvious answer is join the Green Party, <laughs> www.greenparty.org.uk slash join. Uh, but, you know, if you don't want to do that, you don't, you know, you can also just become a friend of the Green Party, um, oh. which, which, is, well, yeah, which is very nice. And, you know, nice. give, give, give us a little money if you like, or indeed, you, know, <laughs> you, don't even, you don't even have to sign up to anything. You know, look around for your local Greens um, and, um, uh, you know, the very soon, if they're not already, you know, undoubtedly we'll have some leaflets to deliver, some social media to do. People can contribute in all kinds of different ways without being a member. But what I would say, you know, even not in a party way, I would say to everyone listening, make politics what you do not have done to you. And by politics, you know, I, I say this when I go into schools and colleges and, you know, say, well, you know, how someone says, how do you do politics? It's like, well, look around this school or college, see something you don't like get together with your friends and start a campaign to change it. And, you know, everyone can do that in their workplace, in their street, um, in their community group, in their whatever. Say, well, you know, I don't think this is working right. I'd like to, you know, work together with others to change it. And it might be, you know, get a pedestrian crossing so the kids can get to the park safely. It might even just be, you know, organise a litter pick. A litter pick is a political act that says that's our public space. We're going to look after it, um, you know. And so... I, what I would say to everybody is get involved because, you know, that really is our best weapon against the far right, the, you know, the other forces mm -hmm. in society, because if people are empowered and they know they can make a difference, you know, Amazing. I, yeah, Amazing. I, I went to a school near Leicester and, you know, the kids had 
just the school council had just won the right for girls to wear trousers. And I did kind of, you know, as an old feminist, I thumped my head on the table and went, <laughs> what century are we in? But, you know, the kids were absolutely delighted by this and good on them. And, you know, they knew what their next campaign was, which was to be allowed to use their mobile phones at lunchtime. Now, I wasn't quite so sure about that, but it's what they wanted. They'd seen that they could collectively decide what they wanted and do it. And that's the kind of society we want. Amazing. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for coming on. This has been incredible. Everyone follow uh, Natalie on Twitter. It's at Natalie Ben. It'll, uh, the link will be in the description to go follow her. Check out everything that's going on. There's the Facebook page as well. Uh, search on YouTube. Amazing. So many amazing great speeches. Thanks so much for coming on. This has been great. Thank you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Oh. Uh, and, you know, I look, I look forward to being able to share it on social when it comes out. Thanks very oh, much. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks for watching, everyone.